Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for December 10th, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shifflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have y'all both on the show tonight. In about 20 minutes from now, we're going to have... Um, on the show for the second time from Nevada, Alex Diaz. But in addition to Nevada politics, Alex is going to discuss some Mexico politics with us, including their upcoming elections, because I don't know about y'all, but I feel like I should know way more about how Mexican elections work, given that they're our neighbor to the south compared to what I know about, say, Canadian elections or even British elections across the um uh, ocean, so I'm excited about learning tonight. Um, but until then, we're going to talk about some topics. And right off the bat, um, Kevin McCarthy, somebody we have talked about many times, and it sounds like that our time discussing Kevin McCarthy um, is likely coming to a close. He announced this past week that he is going to dis- uh, resign from Congress. I guess it's essentially at the end of the year. Um, he'll he'll not make it into 2024 unless I have my dates wrong, as a member of Congress, that's going to trigger a special election in California. It's the Bakersfield area, and I think I read online that it is the most Republican congressional district in California, so it's probably not that great a pickup opportunity, although there is a House seat in Florida that moved somewhere in the neighborhood of like 16 points more democratic, and if that district were to move in those same numbers, it would actually be, you know, kind of in that margin of error, if you will. So, interesting thoughts there. So, let's just start off. Um, Catherine, Kevin McCarthy, we won't have him to, in the words uh, to paraphrase uh, Richard Nixon, to kick around anymore. Um, how surprised were you on his um, resignation? Not surprised at all. I think he's, you know, He's lost all his influence, and, yeah, I mean, totally understandable on his side. You know, I think it's the only move he had, really. Yeah, definitely for somebody that was a climber which he, he seemed to be. Um, Tim, uh, Kevin McCarthy, you know, we've talked about this for a while, if he'd run again, but I kind of felt like this was a bit of a surprise. What about you? Yeah, and, and he called his uh, conference flat-footed, too. They expected him to leave probably at the end of this term, but not at the end of this year. Uh, the 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 and, and the way he had did it he he announced it in 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 an article he wrote in in the wall street journal and what is happening with santos gone too 
McCarthy leaving at the end of the year, that gets the Republicans down to 220 um, members, uh, which means they can now only lose three members in any vote or, or they, they can't pass anything. And so the GOP majority is uh, getting pretty precarious. Uh, David, it, it it really is, and members are quitting at a record pace. I, I I just simply think they they hate being in Congress. Yeah, if you kind of hate government, then why would you yeah. want to spend your life's work doing it? Seemingly, <laughs> I mean, at least I won't say all Republicans do, but but some of the the more new breed that um, talks about you know their feelings in government, <laughs> why would they want to stay there? Um, well, so, uh, Kevin McCarthy, you're right, Tim, that if he does resign, um, I mean, he's resigning. When he leaves, the numbers are so low, and they just kicked out Santos, and that wouldn't have been a reason to keep him if you had a, um, you know, a, a real moral imperative what they did to get rid of him. Um, but is there any chance you think that uh, that seat flips, given that uh, we've seen a lot of these special elections be problematic for Republicans. Catherine first. Um, you know, it's a pretty tight Republican district, but anything's possible if the Democrats can motivate voters and if the Republicans are, you know, if the, whoever they run as the Republican isn't, you know, particularly compelling, uh, you know, any anything's possible depending on the candidates, the timing, and just sort of general attitudes in that district. Yeah, and I don't know the makeup of the district as far as um, is there a college of any size in it? You know, what's the, um, in particular, the educational uh, situation? Because that seems to be a big part of the secret to success in these special elections for the Democrats. Um, Tim, we know it's a Republican district, but what are the odds? Ah, uh, I don't know. That's that's the twentieth district uh, up around uh, Bakersfield, that area. There is a college there, Cal State Bakersfield, but I I just I I. I, 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 I don't think that, That's in the Central Valley that, That's Republican country I guess anything's possible David But if, right. if that district flips There's not a safe Republican district In California next year Let's put it that way Yeah well I don't think In a regular election it would be At any risk and honestly If it's a district that's been Republican Cycle after cycle after cycle that probably doesn't make it the same as that district I was comparing it to in um, South Florida because that district had voted for Hillary Clinton. It was just in recent years it had trended um, for Donald Trump. Uh, I think Ron DeSantis was the one that won it by like 20-some-odd points, and then it was a very narrow Republican victory in that special election. So um, it, it kind of has, I guess, a different profile. Than this seat, um, but we were just seeing these trends where, you know, Republicans have such trouble special elections. Probably, I guess, more um, 
pertinent to our conversation would be the Santos district in York. They actually got candidates this yeah. past week, and that seems very flippable, correct, Tim? Yes, absolutely. The former uh, the former congressman there uh, is going to come back and run Democrat, and it looks uh, prime for the taking. Now, I, I believe yeah. I believe we're going to flip that one. We may flip as many as four districts in New York this cycle, and that'd be in the regular election. Uh, the special election yeah. for George Santos, uh, old seat. Um, Catherine, your thoughts on that one? Oh, I'm sure we'll. I, I'm pretty confident that we'll get that back. Yeah. So that that would be the progress. Um, I mean, that was a fluke. Just didn't happen. It, it was that he got elected. It, it was, was a fluke. She's right. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, George Santos, his whole aura will be a fluke among our democracy <laughs> and, and not the uh, normal um, operating yeah. procedure. Well, Tim, you've got an outrage for us that actually leads into a much bigger topic that we're going to be discussing really between now and November 2024. Go ahead with that outrage. Sure. Um, Charles Cope, Ken Langone, Frank Lawkeen, Stanley Druckenmiller. All of these people have a few things in common. First of all, they're all billionaires. They're among some of the richest people in the country. Another thing that they have in common is that they all right now support Nikki Haley in her campaign for the GOP presidential nomination. Finally, and what I'm going to talk about for just a couple of minutes today, they all speak favorably about Ambassador Haley's plans that she's announced for what she refers to as entitlement reform. Well, when most Republicans use the word reform in this context, what they normally mean is cuts, and specifically when they are referring to Social Security and Medicare, which they are now. Now, I'm certain that many of them would both protest and deny what I just said, but history proves me correct. They've never really liked Social Security, along with almost all other social programs. And we know, you know, from history that after Harry Truman first proposed Medicare in 1948, that they spent the next 17 years fighting its very inception tooth and nail until it finally passed in 1965. So that's why every chance they get, they bring that word reform up. And one of their favorite ways to do that is to bring up the national debt. You know, that thing they only mention when there's a Democratic president. Then they give it that, quote, everything needs to be on the table speech about cutting the budget. Uh, oh, oh, but taxes are not on the table, naturally, unless they're talking about tax cuts, cuts that always benefit the rich almost exclusively, but sales taxes are great, so there's that. Never mind that those, what what sales taxes do to the poor and working people, by the way, and then they almost always deliver their closing argument that Democrats are not being truthful about these programs, they are going broke, and only the Republicans want to protect them. I might add here that they somehow failed to mention that Social Security is fully paid for by the American people 
and has never cost the government of this country one dime. Now the present circumstances. Nikki Haley, like all Republican presidential candidates not named Trump, is trying to somehow separate herself from the rest of the field in hopes of setting up a one-on-one match with a former president. And this is one of her solutions. She is proposing that younger workers should have their retirement age raised in order to draw full benefits. And no, she wouldn't say what age. And she also proposes that benefits be cut for high-income beneficiaries. And again, no, she didn't mention what income or what the cuts would be. She also didn't bother to mention that the Social Security system was designed to be universal. All must participate. And let me go out on a limb here and guess that if rich people get their benefits cut, then they're going to want to pay less or or even nothing into the system, which could cause the system to collapse. Then I'm sure people like Nikki Haley would throw up their hands in despair and proclaim that they told us all along it was going broke, that they were right. Right now, Social Security is in the black until 2034. There's an income cap set this year at $168,600 of income. Income above that amount is not taxed for Social Security. So I'll tell you what, eliminate that cap, and the system, the system is solvent until at least 2046. At that point, baby boomers, who make up a large plurality of retirees, will be between the ages of 80 and 99 and dying out the problem will be solved about the solvency of Social Security. With Medicare, it's about as simple. My first choice would be Medicare for All, something that was made famous by Bernie Sanders. Statistics clearly show that Medicare is uh, more both affordable and effective than private insurance. Another idea proposed by Hillary Clinton, is that the power of the federal government be used to negotiate lower prices with drug companies and providers. Either way, the problem is again solved. Right now, of course, these things would not pass Congress. We need Democrats in both houses in sufficient numbers, along with the presidency, of course, to get this done. I I, I do also know this. Nikki Haley would need a lot of Republican wins in these races to enact her plans. We can't let that happen, folks. Over 40% of seniors would drop below the poverty level without Social Security and Medicare. These seniors, unfortunately, largely vote Republican. Now, I won't get into the fact that they're voting to cut their own throats, which they are, but I will mention this. Ninety-three percent of Republican voters don't think that Social Security benefits need to be cut. Sixty-nine percent of them don't want Medicare benefits cut either, and we know that Democrats and independents oppose these cuts by even wider margins. She had better pay attention to what people out here are saying, because on Election Day, We have all the power to remind her of that. You do that and just watch her and others like her change their tune. Now, I'll leave this with a warning. Elect the wrong party, 
and this power you have will be gone. And those social programs that we love and depend on. Yes, uh, so much here to, to kind of unpack. But I'm going to start here, and something we were talking about this during the week I reminded you all of is, you know, George Bush, he won re-election in 2004, and almost instantly he seemed to be getting a little less popular after that. But the thing that cratered his popularity ratings was when the Republicans and, and he, you know, pushed um, starting to privatize at least a portion of Social Security and go down this road. People turned against him, and 2006 was really a banner year for Democrats that led as a precursor to 2008 because 2006, the economy was not that bad at that point. That was simply a lot of the blowback from this idea. Catherine, do you remember that? Yes, I do remember that. And this is so frustrating for me, um, this whole discussion about Social Security and Medicare. Um, It's so simple. The solution is right there. Raise the tax, raise the, um, the level where people continue to pay taxes. Stop calling it an entitlement program. It's not entitlements. We've paid for it. We've all been paying for it for our whole lives. It, we're not entitled to it. We earned it. <laughs> um, but that's their way of making it sound like it's um, uh, something that we, you know, it's not uh, required. It's like a – anyway. Um, but, yes, I think uh, – Nikki Haley is definitely uh, on a narrow, high wire right now talking about this. Yeah. Well, there's actually two more discussions I want to have off of this, but we may not be able to get into them now. and may have to wait till the other side of Alex. But one thing I think we do have time to talk about is we've been wanting to do a – Buy, sell, hold on the reassurance, you know, the, the emergence of Nikki Haley as the Donald Trump alternative. If she could make this a one-on-one race with Donald Trump in the Republican primaries, could she defeat him? Now, obviously, I think a lot of Democrats would be like, that's great, because Nikki Haley probably believes on, in democracy at some level. Um, I don't think she has any designs on becoming a dictator. Her terrible policies on Medicare and um, Social Security withstanding. But let's talk about just that question. If she became the one-on-one um, other Republican choice to Donald Trump, would you buy, sell, or hold her prospects, Tim? Uh, sell, totally, for two reasons. Number one, her stance on the issues like this and, the, and, and her hard line on abortion, talking about signing a six weeks, you know, ban on abortion. And and number two, Trump has been hit with everything but the kitchen sink, and he's still holding his vote. He's still holding his lead. I think that thing's over. Yeah. Uh, uh, Catherine, same question. Yeah, I, I and mean, I just think all these people who continue to run against uh, Donald Trump are – spending good money after bad. I mean, there's just no, like Tim said, it just, we hit him with everything. He's 91 indictments and he's still the most popular 
GOP candidate. So, yeah, that game's over. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm going to sell as sell as well. I mean, th- three for three. And what is so you know vexing about this is how many candidates jumped into this race thinking that there was some second or third lane, however you want to phrase it, um, because in the primary, I guess it would be a second lane, and then in the um, general, I guess theoretically, if you, you look at it, it's a third lane, but thought there would be something there. There is apparently nothing there, and all these people have flamed out. Um, they've probably created some toxicity among the hardcore Republican base that they're never going to be viable again. Some of them, this is like Nikki Haley, it was probably her only moment because she'll now have been out, out of the governor's mansion of South Carolina for upwards of eight years. Um, she was in the Trump administration. I doubt she gets invited back into this new collection of characters that we may discuss at some point too um so there's just um there's just not much there as a prospect for um and then of course tim i think you're right if these uh, policy proposals are so unpopular and that's what's so interesting and, and and but weird about the trump base is you've got a lot of republicans that do like these ideas of you know, let's, you know, shrink government so far down and let's get rid of programs like Social Security and Medicare. And they make up a portion of the Republican base and probably a lot of the, the real thought police of that party. But then um, the new Republicans that have come into the Trump base, they're the kind of folks, that's not what motivates them. And they probably depend on those two programs once they reach 62, 65, 67, whenever they decide to take Social Security, whenever they can um, go on Medicare. And it's the way that it's, it's essentially probably most of their retirement, and there's nothing wrong with that. And they depend on it, but they're motivated by other issues. And sadly, one of them may be the color of Nikki Haley's skin. Folks like that, they may be motivated to try to you know, bring back some version of America that they've, you know, created and idealized um, from the past. Tim, you were going to interject something. Yeah. uh, Have you noticed on both Social Security and abortion, (laughs) the hard, the really hard line stuff, Trump has refused to go there. He is already positioning himself for the general election. One of the few Times I can say that's a smart thing to do and put it in the same sentence with Donald Trump. But even <laughs> he, uh, what she's doing is trying to position herself in the GOP nominating process. Trump is already looking beyond that because he can read polls like we do. He don't need to do anything. Yeah. Now let's uh, let's try to branch out into another piece of this with this little bit of time we've got, and we'll stay with Donald Trump. We won't go to other figures who made crazy statements in this genre. But um, Donald Trump, at a campaign appearance, talked about replacing Obamacare. And and we've seen recent polls. Obamacare, or the Affordable Care, Care Act, gets more and more popular every year. It was an odd program in that, when President Obama passed it and, and the Democrats passed it, it was almost underwater. But as every year it um, functions, it just gets more and more popular. P- 
people see more and more the need and the stability and what's good about it. And so um, it, it just it's at this point. But now Donald Trump wants to replace it. Uh, Catherine, how off key as far as you know politics and polling was uh, Donald Trump's uh, assertion this past week? Very much so. Uh, you know, uh, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare or whatever you want to call it is is partly the partly its popularity is based on this sort of new uh, employment model. You know, a lot of gig uh, employment, a lot of part-time, multiple part-time jobs that may not offer benefits. So this, uh, the Affordable Care Act can step in and provide that uh, medical security that people want so that they can go off and, you know, be more entrepreneurial or, you know, how, I mean, and I think a lot of this comes from COVID. And the other thing is COVID showed us how important healthcare coverage was as well. So, yeah, everybody's off base if they're going after the Affordable Care Act. I think that it is here to stay, and we can only hope that it gets better and becomes more like Medicare for All. Yes. Well, we'll get more into this discussion in a while, but right now we're excited to join us, uh, come back on the show and join us for the second time from Nevada, Mr. Alex Diaz. Welcome, Alex. Hello, Dave. Nice, uh, nice to talk to you. I hope you're doing all right. Yeah. Oh, we're doing well. Um, well, well, Alex, uh, before we get into the discussion, I'm going to let actually Tim and Catherine handle a lot of the Nevada talk. But I did want to uh, mention sure. when I booked you, you were real, real active on Twitter. Then you went off of Twitter a while, and then you got back on. I'm glad you got back on, but, of course, I'm sad at the circumstances. You told me you'd taken a break, but then you decided to get back on because of the tragic shooting at UNLV, your alma mater. If you just want to tell us kind of anything about that process, and then if you have any, you know, thoughts you want to share about what happened this past week at UNLV, we want to give you space to do that. Yeah, I uh, I went to UNLV. Um, I went there for, you know, for for a couple of years, uh, and uh, you know, I remember while I, while I was a student at UNLV, <clears throat> I would hear about school shootings happen at other schools. And, uh, you know, it really hits home when it happens right at, you know, right at, right at my university. Um, I've already graduated, but, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, the community still feels it. it's like, wow, it happened here. Yeah, and, and I think Las Vegas, when we, we talk about these tragic shootings that come along, and some of them are, are, are so tragic because of the age of the victims or the circumstances surrounding but when I think of the one where, you know, the people like to talk about the good guy and the gun and how this could be prevented by more firearms, Las Vegas, the one that happened at that country music concert, comes to mind as just the one that completely obliterates that theory because there's no way that anybody prevents – really, I, I don't know if it was the most, but it was one of the most um, tragic losses of life and sheer numbers that night at that concert and it was came yeah. from an area which you know you'd have to be like a, a sniper a military figure to you know yeah, be able to locate that guy yeah, essentially from what i remember from the details of october 1st 
I was actually still still at UNLV when that happened, by the way. It was like in October 2017. I was still at UNLV. And, uh, and I remember from the details that that Pad, uh, that Paddock was, uh, he decided to enter the casino. He smuggled in some firearms, and he put a bump stock modification that made it fire like an automatic. Yeah, and just the window he was at in that Mandalay Bay Hotel um, overlooking that area. Well, um, I'm going to pass it over to Tim, who will pass it to Catherine for questions about Nevada politics now. Uh, Tim? Yeah, good good evening, uh, Alex. Thank you for being with good us again. Yeah, so, so, so just this week, six Republican alternate mm-hmm. electors from 2020 have been indicted in Nevada, including the state Republican Party chair. And uh, yeah. against this backdrop, the governor... Uh, Joe Lombardo is a Republican. Is there yeah. any hint that he might somehow try to interfere legally in this case? Um, very good question. Um, like, like the Attorney General has uh, has made it clear. Like Attorney General Ford, since uh, he was uh, reelected, that this was something of interest. That that he felt he felt that this that this went against, uh, you know, the Nevada, you know, the Nevada state constitution. That he felt that it went against the law, and he went after these uh, fake electors. Um, uh-huh. Now, whether Joe Lombardo would would intervene, I can't I can't really speak for the governor. But you know, from what I from what I understand from from the governor is that um, is that is that he he tends to be more of a moderate Republican and. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, and that I know of, Joe Lombardo hasn't really engaged in electoral denialism. So I think Lombardo would be less inclined to intervene. Okay. Because I don't, I don't uh, like he's running for re-election in a few years, and I don't think he wants that on his record. Yeah. Looking ahead to next year, as they do in many states, nonpartisan voters are the largest group of voters in Nevada, outnumbering both Democrats and Republicans. Uh, how are they leaning for the 2024 election? Um, that's that's interesting because I mean, if we look if we look at the polling, you know, uh, you know, everything seems pretty dismal for Democrats. Like uh, you know, uh-huh. support among Democrats is low. Republicans seem pretty energized, and and and, and the polling Republicans have a have a lead among independents. If you look at just like national polling or Nevada polling, it kind of reflects more or less, it points more or less the same thing. But mm-hmm. if we look at what happened in 2022, in 2022, um, uh, Catherine, Catherine Cortez Masto made it out to a very difficult election by, by slightly less than a point. It was like 0.8. And part of that reason uh-huh. why is because Cortez Masto won about two thirds of nonpartisan voters. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and, and of course and she, she did Cisillac, yeah. Go and uh, Cisillac failed because uh, he slightly he did slightly worse among independents like he was winning them but let's say where Catherine Cortez Masto was hitting that 67 margin like 67, 68 Cisillac was hitting more like 55, 56 so that's what cost him the election 
Yeah. So what about Hispanic voters? I, n- I know that Democrats have had trouble, like in the state of Florida, uh, losing support among Hispanics. Um, yeah. And there are some rumblings in a lot of these other states that Hispanic leaders are saying that their vote should not be taken for granted by anyone. So Hispanic voters are such an important block. In your state, I believe something like thirty percent of your population is Hispanic. How does that look yeah. for Joe Biden? Um, like uh, from the main concern that I've uh, that I've read, you know, among articles, you know, like you know, regarding the Hispanic community here in Nevada, is just a concern of uh, is that people are really tuned out, like they aren't really uh, they aren't really motivated, like they aren't they aren't excited about. Uh, about about what they see, about what they about what they perceive in society. Um, so that's that's what Hispanic leaders are seeing. It's just generally low engagement and low motivation. Hmm. Uh, I want to ask you one question about Mexico. Then I'm going to send yes, it over to Catherine because Mexico is going to do something that even the United States has not done. Uh-huh. They're probably going to elect yeah. a female president this year. What what has brought that uh, about in Mexico? What next year? Um, so mm-hmm. what has brought that about? Well, it's just uh, there's there's been a lot of societal changes in Mexico, just like have just like how the U.S. had has had changes in terms of women's rights. Like uh, Mexico has had their has has seen a change. Um, like there is like in the past. Like at least until 1990s, there's been a very big introduction of women into the workforce. Like before the 90s, women didn't really work, and mm-hmm. they were, you know, it was more like a traditional role. Like they were like homemakers. Uh, uh-huh. So post 1990s, women joined the workforce, and you know, 2000s, we start seeing uh, more political involvement of women, and and uh, yeah, this is this is just what happened to transpire that both that two of the biggest uh, coalitions and political coalitions in Mexico happen to garner up women. Wow. So, you know, I just want to leave you with this, that I, that I, I'm jealous of Mexico for, for getting ahead of us in this. I hope to see the day when we elect a female president in this country. And with that, I'm going to yeah. send it over to Catherine. Catherine. Hey, thank you. That's a great introduction. Um, Because I I don't know very much about Mexican politics, I'll be honest. And uh, as David said in his intro, uh, it's kind of embarrassing. I mean, I know quite a bit about Canadian politics and a little bit about Mm -hmm. European, but not very much about Mexican. And I'm surprised that um, about this, uh, these two women that are running what distinguishes yeah. them from each other, and uh, how? Uh, what is what does it look like as far as left, right, conservative, liberal, as as far as these two candidates and their um, their likelihood to be elected? That's a that's a very good question, uh, actually. Uh, like Mexico, Mexico's like political. Its political alignment is is, uh, is a bit different than the U.S. Like, it's like both parties are pretty big tent parties. Like in terms of like coalitions. So the Marina Party has people 
from the center, center right, all the way to, like, people that are almost essentially like communists, like on the far left. So we have people who are very center right, think almost Bill Clinton style, all the way to people who, like, you know, that, you know, that call themselves socialists. That's, that's a Marina coalition. And on the PRI, the PAN, and the PRD coalition, you have, you have, you have a right wing, you have a center, and then a center left coalition. So it's, it's just, so, so in Mexico, the parties tend to be less ideological. Um, but what distinguishes Scheinbaum from Galvez, um, is that Scheinbaum is, uh, <clears throat> She she aligns her. She's more of a social democrat. She's a really big um, one. She's really big on talking about um, investing into renewable energy. That's her big thing. She wants Mexico to have less dependence on oil and to start manufacturing more uh, solar energy stuff. And and also she says she wants to build more rail in Mexico. While Galvez, her position is that um, is that she uh, she believes that that the uh, that the that 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 the that the public sector in Mexico should be privatized, like you know that there's state-run companies in Mexico that should be privatized. So it's like so it's people that still believe in you know and whether the government has a bigger role in in the economy or not. Like socially, uh, Galvez is socially Galvez has come out in favor of uh, LGBTQ rights. Um, as far as I'm aware, Scheinbaum is also pro LGBTQ. So socially, both parties aren't that different, like right now, like in terms of social stances. Um, Galvez coalition partners might not like, you know, especially the National Action Party might not like her stance on, uh, uh, you know, on stance on LGBTQ and abortion because, you know, the National Action Party is a Christian right party and, and they lean more social conservative, but that's the deal that they that they made when they set up that coalition. It would be, it would be a more of a moderate coalition. Well, that's really interesting. So, to um, and so, yeah. and what what and what do people think about? Like, what's the general? What are the general like issues that the Mexican voters are concerned about? Are they concerned about climate change? Is that one of the reasons that uh, the one candidate is focusing on, you know, limiting dependence on oil, and or is that just her thing? Well, the thing is that part of Scheinbaum's popularity is that uh, she is seen as AMLO's successor of the party, and AMLO currently has like a 65% approval rating, which is pretty high, and uh, and that popularity is spilling over onto her. Like she has said that she wants to uh, that she wants to do what AMLO has been doing, and essentially what AMLO has been doing that has made him fairly popular. Is that he's done? He's done austerity cuts into, uh, let's say, um, the salaries of uh, government officials. He's saying, "Oh, they're being paid too much," and he's like, "He's like, let me create social security for uh, for people who worked in the informal sectors of the economy." So let's talk, you know, people who work in like agriculture, but they never worked with the big business. And he's like, "Oh, let's come up with the whole pension system for them." So that's why Amlo is really popular with the Mexican working class. He he, uh, you know, he, he, you know, he, he, he has given them something, and and a lot of people like that. And, and Scheinbaum has said she's going to roll off what what Amlo has done, and so that's that's why she's maintaining that popularity and about like twenty thirty point leads in, in Mexican polls. Oh, well, that's great. I, I I like to hear this. 
I need to spend some time uh, studying Mexican politics because it sounds interesting. Anything yeah. we missed about Nevada politics? Is there anything like uh, really interesting that we didn't ask you about? Um, Nevada politics right now. Well, right now uh, a lot of people are starting to uh, gear up and prepare for themselves. Uh, you know, for uh, for 2024, I already know of people that are like, yes, I am busy right now doing calls to uh, you know <laughs> to prospective donors and you know talk you know talking to organizations. Yeah, people are are really ramping up for that uh, uh, for that primary uh, for that primary next year. Um, more so on the local side because you know we also uh, the municipal politics have been moved. We used to have odd year elections where where the municipal politics would be like let's say Vegas would elect a mayor in like I don't know like 20, 2019, right? Um, Nevada, you know the Nevada governor at the time the slag decided like like you know what these these elections have way too much low turnout. Let's move it to even years. So um, oh, well, that was so hard. right now that's that's. Yeah, that, so that's what I'm try, so that's what I'm starting to see is that a lot of the municipal people uh, that you know that are running you know that are running locally they're they're already starting to to prepare themselves for next year, and a lot of them hope to clear that primary because if they can clear that primary with over fifty, that means they don't have to run again, like in the general <laughs> in November. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Well, thank yeah. you very much for being with us tonight. I'm going to pass it back to David for any final questions. Thank you. Sure, thank you. Yeah. Uh, um, well, Alex, I kind of wanted to ask you about the timeline of the Mexican elections. And I'll tell you why. Like, it, it seems like weeks ago, maybe even months ago, I heard, you know, that uh, yeah. oh, the next president of Mexico will be a woman because the two yeah. candidates of the parties have been decided. And I thought, wow, the Mexican election's coming mm-hmm. up soon. And they're like, oh, no, that's yeah. next year. And so. Kind of give us the timelines, like how candidates are chosen, this campaign period, when the actual election will be, and and kind of frame that out for us. Well, the way that uh, the way that candidates were chosen, uh, they both both major candidates of the two biggest coalition parties, which is Marina and uh, and PRI PRD. Uh, so so yeah, Marina is separate from the from the last three I mentioned. So they both they both essentially selected their uh their 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 candidates through and through an intra party selection. It's not exactly like a primary, like the way that Marina selected a uh, selected Shine Bomb is that they said it's like they said we're gonna run and we're gonna run polling, you know, from different companies and whoever in the end has has the highest polling of essentially there would be polling companies that would call party members around Mexico asking them for it's like, hey, who do you support most? more so they did they did very through an internal party polling and that's how they selected Scheinbaum. Uh the way that they selected Galvez, um I believe I believe it was I believe it was a matter of the uh, of the National Action Party, the Institutional Revolutionary Party and the PRD coming you know coming together and saying it's like okay we're going to we're going to coalesce against uh against Galvez. I believe that's how Galvez was selected in, in her selection process. So so the primary process in Mexico was a little bit more closed. It isn't like an open primary um I shouldn't say open primary for the US, but it isn't but it isn't open to voting like the US, uh, you know, where party members get to get get to vote for them directly. 
Uh, so it's a little bit different in that way. Um, but yeah, yeah, the timeline. So so yeah, we're, we're already past the timeline of uh, both major parties have already selected their candidates. So the Mexican presidential election is held uh, next. Uh, you know, this upcoming June in 2024. So we will know. We will know. Um, you know, after the first week of June, who you know who won the presidential election. And is it always and I in there, June, or does it rotate? Yeah, it's always in June. It's always in okay. June, and uh, and the president is inaugurated in December, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. So, so basically, next year when we're going through the presidential election and everybody's complaining about how long the American political season <laughs> is, we'll just say it could be worse. Yeah. We could be in Mexico where <laughs> they've known their candidates for months now. Yes. Almost a year long. Yeah. Well, I did want to ask you one more question about Nevada. We didn't mention your U.S. Mm-hmm. Senate race. Jackie Rosen, um, I believe, I guess, is yes. your junior senator. She's running for re-election. How is that race shaping up? Um, Jackie Rosen, uh, she, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people underrate Jackie Rosen. Like some people, you know, have shown concern towards me. Like Alex, can can Jackie Rosen really pull it off? And you know, I, you know, based on you know, people would be concerned based from what they see on polling because polling, you know, does it's like you know, it shows a fairly tight tight race between uh, Rosen and uh, Sam Brown. Uh, but the thing about Jackie Rosen is that she's a constant over performer in uh, the city of Henderson. Henderson is a is like a suburb of Vegas. I know the people in Henderson don't like being affiliated with Vegas, but they are very close to Vegas. Uh, so uh, sorry, Hendersonites. Uh, but any, anyways, uh, anyways, she's a constant overperformer in Henderson. Uh, when she first ran for Congress, um, she 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 overperformed the, the baseline Democrat performance in Henderson by, you know, by just a few points. And and that and at that time, you know, Henderson's a Republican, uh, a Republican-leaning city. It votes it votes it votes Republican, you know, by by several points. We're talking about. Like I, I don't know anywhere between six to ten points depending on the election, uh, but she was able to close that margin. And uh, Henderson is a city with uh, with a substantial number of votes, and uh, and in that city there's a there's a Jewish community. There's a substantial Jewish community, and uh, and that Jewish community in Henderson is a little bit more conservative than in other parts of that of the country. And the thing about Rosen's background is that she is she is Jewish, and I believe she was the president of a synagogue, and she has she has very good ties with that community, and uh, and uh, she has built herself um, as a record of being of being a moderate, and and I think um, and I think with with those with those things uh, together, you know, it won't be it won't be easy to paint you know uh, Jackie Rosen as being soft on Israel. So that's yeah. so that's one thing that Sam Brown can't attack Jackie Rosen on because Rosen owns that issue pretty much. Yeah, and we know that that's an issue right now that seems like it's it's very complicated. Down the road, it's hard to predict what that issue, the impact of it, will be and the different twists, and it'll be different from state to state based on you know some demographics. Well, that was really interesting yep. information, and we're going to continue mm-hmm. to watch Nevada because it's in that handful of six to maybe eight states that are actually going to be in play, and it has a U.S. Mm-hmm. Senate race. So I think uh, Nevada is going to be one of the 
top four or five states to watch um, for 2024 like it was in 2020 mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, like it was in 2022. Yeah. So, um, Alex, we'll continue to call on you. And obviously, as we get closer to that June election date, you're now mm-hmm. our Mexican election expert for the Kudzu Vine. Oh, that's uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of humbled since uh, yeah, I started reading into Mexican <laughs> Mexican elections about like two years ago. It's like, huh, I wonder what's what's going on down south. And uh, you know, I started learning a lot. Uh, my brother-in-law is, uh, you know, he's a journalist. He reads a lot about Mexico, and I learned a lot about what I know from him. And and I started finding out my own sources too, like on online. And you know, that's that's how I kind of keep up with with what's going on down there. Yeah, well, and you're also, I guess, not two years ahead of us. Well, leave us with one last thing. Uh, Tell us if anybody wants to follow you on social media, read your writings anywhere else, just share any of that information. Yeah, you can follow me on my Twitter at AlexOdiazNV. So that is AlexOdiazNV, just, you know, my handle for Twitter. That's also my handle for threads for anybody who uses uh, threads. Uh, So. Well, yeah. Thank you very much for uh, you know letting me speak on your uh, on your uh, on your channel here, and uh, yeah, it's good talking to you guys. Thank you. Yeah, so good to have you again, Alex. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank All you right. very much. You guys have a have a have a good night. You as well. Bye-bye. All right, Alex Diaz of Nevada, who also um, you know knew, knows more about Mexican politics than the three of us, definitely before tonight. But we've started our journey of learning more since it sounds like all three of us, uh, our intrigue has peaked. Well, let's continue back on that discussion we were talking about. And, and, and Catherine, you had just spoken about Donald Trump and his statement about repealing Obamacare. Tim, I'm going to make a statement, and I'm going to let you say more about it. Um, I believe one of the big reasons that Donald Trump wants to uh, either replace, I guess is actually to use his terminology correctly, replace Obamacare is for some reason anything that has the Obama name on it he wants to change as much as he you know went after Hillary Clinton in 2016 as much as he's gone after Joe Biden in 2020 and since I just get the sense that Donald Trump has a white hot passion for President Obama and the Obama administration and the signature um, achievement that you know bears his name for a lot of people. He wants to change that and end that, doesn't he? Hmm. Trump hates Obama. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, and it, it's as simple as it, it goes back to that national uh, correspondence dinner. Obama ridiculed him with Trump in the audience, and he literally hates Barack Obama personally. This is a personal thing with Trump. If it had somebody else's name on it, I doubt he would be this adamant about getting rid of it. And 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 he he is so tainted by this that he doesn't even care about the political fallout. He will do whatever it takes if he becomes president to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, and they came within a vote of doing it once before. Uh, Only John McCain saved it. 
Um, and now he has a very Republican Supreme Court behind him. And, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I think he'll go right after it if, he, if he's uh, elected president. There's no doubt in my mind that he's going to go right after it. He's going to make it a priority. Yes, and I tell you, I actually think the impetus for all this predates that correspondence dinner. That correspondence dinner may have been like throwing a, a 10-gallon gasoline can onto that fire. But I don't know if y'all remember this, but when Osama bin Laden, the announcement was made that he had been assassinated, that troops had found him, and they had taken him out, they preempted the apprentice. They preempted every other show, too, but Donald Trump probably didn't care about those shows. And I think he actually sees that in the front, which is just shows you everything you need to know about Donald Trump, one of the greatest villains in American history that um, – In world know, history. Was the, in world history that, that you know caused this horrible, horrific act on the mainland soil of America – we had gotten this guy. This was one of those moments where, you know, Democrats, Republicans, rural city, you know, any kind of divide comes together and says, you know, this is a good thing. Barack Obama announces it, and Donald Trump's reality show, and I, I was watching that night, got preempted. Um, and, and I think he really hated that, and that's what started it. And then it just grew more and more and more with the birtherism and everything else. But let's talk about the politics of this thing. You know, Democrats, when we talk about inflation, we're, have, we're struggling, there's issues, but we continue to see health care is such a strong issue. Uh, that's one issue that the people, the majority of the people still think Democrats do better on health care. How big a gift did Donald Trump hand Joe Biden, who was the vice president when the Affordable Health Care Act was passed, who was in the Senate and shepherded that through? Um, how big a gift was he given, Catherine, by this statement this past week by Donald Trump? Um, you know, I mean, for for ordinary voters or, you know, people who might, you know, maybe could vote for Trump if they really – it makes a difference, but for his base, they don't care. They trust him. They think he's, you know, all that in a bag of chips. So whatever he says, matter. It doesn't matter to the base that's going to get him to the to the ticket. Well, but if all he had was his base, and he hadn't grown that base any, then he's going to lose anyway. But if we believe the the current political dynamics, he possibly added some people back, um, maybe some of the new voters that have come online, uh, maybe supporting him. Because obviously we know, too, he did better with older voters, and not to be grim about it, but Tim brought this up during the Social Security discussion, some of those folks are dying off. So there has to be something in play to, to actually make it an election. If we just run it back again and again, there's no change. Um, Tim, same question. How big a gift was Joe Biden given with this statement? Well, it, it, it can't hurt, but but uh, Catherine's right about one thing. It's not going to affect Trump's base at all. 
and it's not going to affect the other people who are not as hardcore based but are thinking about voting for him. Uh, they'll dismiss it with saying, oh, he's just talking. He just talks a lot of stuff off the top of his head that either he's not really thinking of doing or that Congress is not going to let him do. And this is one of those things. Uh, so I, I, I don't know if it will make as big a ripple as we would hope that it would. Somehow, at the moment, I don't think it would. I think the way it can make an impact is if Democrats begin to shift the conversation to medical care in a bigger way. And it actually fits in the, you know, the larger um, economy question. But right now, I mean, you know, we, we see the polls. If we're going to talk about prices of crap, which the president, no matter which party, has almost zero impact upon, that's not a winner. You've got to get that conversation changed. You know, uh, people talk about it like, you know, Joe Biden or if Donald Trump was in charge, they'd be like a stock checker at the – um, you know, the grocery store deciding the price of eggs and milk and Cokes and, you know, potato chips. So that's just not the case. And so we've got to figure out some way to change it to a subject in which it's actually truthful. The president, the Congress has decision-making power on this subject. And this is most definitely one of those, um, you know, those topics. Well, one last thing, and then we're going to have to move on for the evening, is Montana uh, Republican U.S. Senate candidate. He's one of the two, uh, Matt Rosendahl, uh, Rosendale. He's one of the two congressmen for uh, Montana. He mentioned this week that um, he thought medical care was better off when there was no insurance. You just paid your doctor. They came to your house. And you just pay your doctor for the services rendered, and it was so much cheaper and so much more affordable. Catherine, he said this statement in 2023. Wasn't that a lovely view of medical care back in, say, 1893? Yeah, I think he's been re- re- watching reruns of uh, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, or something. Um, yeah, that was that was such a boneheaded thing to say. Um, you know. The days of, you know, of that kind of health care were prior. To, I mean, it, it, there's just so much, so much to talk about about that. Technology, medical advances, uh, aging, uh, you know, the mo- movement of people. I mean, of course, when I was growing up, we had a, everyone had the same, everyone in our neighborhood went to the same pediatrician, and we all knew him, and, if we had an emergency, you know, we called him at home and he, and he would meet us at his office. But that was 50 years ago, uh, 60 years ago. Um, times have changed. Get with it, buddy. It's not, we're not going back to private medical care. It's not going to happen. Yeah, Tim, uh, don't you love it when your doctor, when you, let's say, need an ultrasound or, you know, even if you need a surgery, they just come and sterilize your home and they take care of all there on a house call, right? Right. Sure they do, David. Uh, This, I mean, this guy wants to totally privatize. Yeah, wants to totally 
Yeah, there we go. Totally <laughs> privatized health care. I, I think he's been watching too much A Little House on the Prairie. That's what Catherine said just <laughs> reminded me of that where, you know, yeah. I brought you a dozen eggs, Doc. Yeah, and he says, yeah, just put it in the storeroom there by the apples that the previous patient brought me. I'm, I'm afraid it's not. It, it, it's not like that. Uh, uh, it, now his aides immediately saw his mistake. They're 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 trying to walk it back. They claim he was insurance industry. No, he, and, and of course they added in. Oh, he also wants to protect Social Security and Medicare. Why? Why? Of course he does. Uh, it's just a silly thing to say, and it's total nonsense. Yeah, and I think this fits into this bigger narrative of the evening. Nikki Haley wants to cut Medicare. Donald Trump yeah. wants to repeal Obamacare. The leading Senate candidate for the Republicans in Montana and a current congressman thinks that medical care functions like it did 100 years ago in rural areas. It probably honestly didn't function like that in a lot of American cities. Um and so these people are out of touch on this major issue in which people um, and governments can actually have an impact upon how can you trust them. This is the narrative that they've given this past week, and Joe Biden and the Democratic Party needs to run with this thing because it is a political winner, but it's not just like, oh, a shell game. It's actually important. And so I think this is, you know, should be – part of a reframing of the election. One more last point on this. This guy's running for U.S. Senate in Montana. Probably the second best pickup opportunity based on the demographics and political leanings of the state in the country after West Virginia. And he made this major gaffe. And this can only yes. help John Tester in his reelection right. race. And right. so um, it, it, that's where if it has no more impact outside of the state, it's still going to have huge impact on the nation as a whole. Well, once again, thanks to Kevin – I mean, I'm sorry, Alex Diaz for coming on the show tonight and sharing such great information about Mexico and Nevada. And not next Sunday, but next week on Tuesday, the 19th during the morning, we are so excited to have on the show Kevin Oisano, and Kevin is the new executive director of the Democratic Party of Georgia. He also is currently residing and has been the executive director of both the Rhode Island and the New Jersey uh, Democrats. But in addition to telling about his you know, thoughts on the Georgia Democratic Party, he's also willing to tell us about New Jersey politics. And if I'm not mistaken, in the, you know, over decade long, over 15 years long of having the Cuddly Vine, we have never discussed uh, and had a New Jersey expert on the show. And with that U.S. Senate race in particular, that's going to be a really interesting discussion as well. So we're excited in about nine days' time getting Kevin on the show. But until then, been the Cuddly Vine. Good night, guys. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created...
With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.